All right, Riyad Minty, thank you very much for joining us on the Transit Lounge. It's going to be very difficult for me not to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> what about Transit Lounge or about, you know, this makeshift studio that we've set up in Doha? Or no, it's just very unusual to see the two of you like that. <laughs> we are media professionals. Hello and welcome to the Transit Lounge, where we track the journeys of people who've had a considerable impact on the Muslim world. I'm Mohammed Zaud, and today on the show, Riyad Minty, the head of digital at TRT World and one of the brains behind the AJ Plus phenomenon. So guys, in life we're often faced with competing choices. Do I turn right or do I turn left? Do I stay or do I quit? Do I let go of the bird in hand to try something new? Well this interview, among other things, sheds light on the life of someone who's had a consistent decision making process his entire life and that is to follow the mission. Go wherever you can have more of an impact. Okay, at the outset of the interview, I've got to confess a couple of things. Riyadh's a good friend of mine and I've known him for several years, but even I was surprised by some of the things he's opened up to in this interview, particularly about his personal life. We speak about his decision to leave South Africa at the age of 22, to pursue a decade at Al Jazeera, leading on the ground on projects such as AJ Plus in San Francisco. And then we also talk about his move to TRT in Turkey. We actually also speak fairly deeply and fairly openly about his personal life. We speak about his spirituality and also his life challenge of not being able to have kids. Riyadh's just a few years older than me, he's in his early 30s and currently he leads a growing team of 200 journalists and digital strategists. We started the interview in South Africa where he talks about his life as a fourth generation South African Muslim and the impact that the apartheid and in particular 9-11 had on him and his decision to drop out of university. Enjoy the interview. I'll be jumping in and out to draw on some of the other things we spoke about. It's interesting when people talk to South Africans and ask them about where you're from, you say South Africa, and so it's where you're really from in like South Africa. Where are you really, really from? Like, no, really, we're from South Africa. And I think people find that confusing because I think a lot of other migrant communities um, maybe first or second generation. Um, South Africans kind of got an earlier head start. My parents have a ladies' fashion clothing store in South Africa. So I actually grew up working in the fashion store. I even used to design stuff for the store when I was a kid. Um, spent my weekends working there, holidays working there, and everything was kind of around the family business. What would you say is unique about the South African Muslim community? I think going through apartheid, I remember my parents kind of moved to the first neighborhood. We were sort of one of the first non-white families to move into a neighborhood. The parks that were in the area, we weren't allowed to play in those parks because of um, we weren't white enough to play in those parks. And a lot of our families were involved in the struggle. So I think growing up beyond a sense of just a Muslim identity in terms of a struggle for a collective beyond just being Muslim, for your struggle for survival, your struggle for equality within a society. Sort of our parents' generation, my uncles, aunts, all of them being part of sort of that liberation movement. Um, growing up in that puts us in a slightly different space to other Muslims. I mean, the challenges that we went through were more on a country level versus just being a religious level. So I am a dropout. I dropped out of my first year. So I was in my final year of high school when 9-11 happened. Um, and it was sort of this wake-up call for me, sort of seeing what's been happening in the world, from Palestine to the invasion into Iraq and everywhere else. Um, and that's sort of awakening for me. Initially, I was a lot more involved in sports. Like, I think what I did want to initially study before that would have been sports physiotherapy 
or get involved in sports coaching in some uh, capacity. But I think that kind of got me interested more in sort of a human rights sort of value space. So I started studying law and marketing. That was my first year. I remember going for lectures probably for the first month. And then I spent more time on the MSA, putting up posters, organizing protests, organizing a whole lot of different events. And I spent, that was probably my first year on campus. So yes, another successful dropout right here on the Transit Lounge. But you'll notice, just like some of the others you'll hear from on the Transit Lounge, Riyadh only dropped out when he had a decent opportunity to pursue. So before you decide not to sit for your next exam, try to land an opportunity like the one that drove Riyadh to drop out. His cousin had the rights to a new technology that allowed phones to send photos. And at the end of his first year of uni, he thought, why not? Let's give it a go. Let's try this thing. He was 18. He was 18. He needed his father's permission to get a credit card. But he took the chance and built a business in South Africa that would end up with clients such as Virgin Mobile Australia. It was a technology that would identify the type of device you had. So if you took a picture and you sent it to someone who had a black and white phone, it would convert it to a black and white image and serve it to you. We wanted to get Old Zira as a client because of the war and everything that was happening. Because also, before YouTube days, it was able to take videos and put it on the internet, which was, uh, this was back in 2002, um, where people could go and watch anything live. Um, so we set out just trying to experiment with this. My, I'm fortunate to have, alhamdulillah, parents who let me do this. When I look back at it now, I don't know why they did. Um, no, to go from a law degree to, um, to this, know, but I think my father kind of, was willing to give me a bit of time to kind of see where this went and the potential in it. So we traveled around and we started building a company. The technology itself was one part, which people didn't necessarily want. This was before 3G technology came out. This was back when you had GPRS and Edge. But people liked the idea of the content. So we moved into content production. We started producing now animated GIFs are kind of back in. But back then we were doing animated greeting cards as GIFs that have been sent via SMS um, through premium rated. I don't know if anyone remembers premium rated billing you'd send in. A code to a phone number and you get billed whatever the price is and then you'd get something sent back to your phone so from ringtones all those sort of things so we used to do that um, and then we launched an islamic content put together the company in the uk in south africa so you could get surah fatiha and your tasbihs and all these sort of things on your phone and islamic ringtones we grew to become one of the top four content providers in south africa at the time serving got into south africa and into the middle east and then all of a sudden someone taps you on the shoulder from al jazeera yeah, so Al Jazeera, we always wanted to get Al Jazeera as a client. The first time I spoke to Al Jazeera, they wanted, I think, $2 million, wanted us to pay them $2 million. <laughs> so I don't so think let I me get this right. Al Jazeera asked you for $2 million yeah, something to like have that. access to their content library so that you can make it into what, a digital online library. And sell, yeah, that sort of thing. But obviously, we didn't have the money, and that's kind of um, that proposal still kind of existed. Um, there was a management change at Al Jazeera around about 2006, and they had come to South Africa to kind of look at expansion in these sort of spaces. And I had known Wadda from his time previously when he was a correspondent in South Africa. So he came to South Africa and was um, met with him and a couple of people, and they had the proposal that we had before. The head of online had seen it. And they said, instead of outsourcing to our company, we kind of, can we join? Or what is interested in joining and moving out to Doha? So get your pens out and make, make sure you've got the numbers right. At 18, 1-8, at 18, Riyadh decided to drop out of a law degree to pursue a startup to send Hallmark greeting cards. Then, at 22, Riyadh decides to move to Doha, starting off 
as an e-marketing specialist at Al Jazeera. And in his time in Al Jazeera, I'd say, and I can be testament to the fact that he's probably had as much impact on the network as any veteran presenter or correspondent. His job, alongside two others, was to get Al Jazeera online. In 2022, it doesn't seem like such a big move, I guess. Um, the promise for me was just the chance to make a difference in the world. And I think everything does happen politically and geopolitically. Al Jazeera was probably the only channel offering a counter voice of scale. And I think for me to be part of that, to learn from that, to learn from people that were there and just to be exposed to what's happening is something that was important to me. And for me, I've been fortunate that at least everything that I've done in life is something that I'm passionate about and something that's been meaningful in terms of beyond just the paycheck. It's something that can have an impact in the world where I can learn and have that. And following that has been my guiding light for a lot of the decisions between myself and my wife. Um, and alhamdulillah, it's worked out so far. I mean, I've, I've lived in Doha for the last few years and it's been really a great experience, very shiny, um, great restaurants, great cafes. The weather is bad two months of the year, but then great for the rest. Uh, you get to travel. But surely in 2006, things were a little different. Wasn't it very daunting for a 22-year-old and his wife once you arrived in the old Doha airport? Did you ever have second thoughts about Doha, about the move? I think I never had second thoughts about that. I think when you're young and you move the first time, there are a lot of, there are a lot of things that I think you don't factor in that you need to learn through life. It's not always easy moving to countries, packing up your entire life and moving. I think leaving family is the biggest thing. Um, I think even now being away from family is still something that's tough, especially the longer you're out, the more time, every time I go back, you see your parents getting older or you see your uncles, aunts getting older, hearing of people passing away. It's that phone call you get at 3 a.m. You don't know what it is or what's going to happen. So I think that for me is the toughest part. Um, and I think if anything, I think that's time you don't get back. Um, so early days at Ultazira, um, I started off in the mobile team, um, looking at my background that was mobile content, so looking at mobile media. Um, this was pre-Facebook days, free, uh, pre-Twitter days, pre-all of these sort of things. And it was interesting being part of the new media team, being so young, not having a degree. I think all of us were young at the time. Um, just the level of or the lack of seriousness people actually give to your ideas when you're young. You're always kind of fighting uphill battles and trying to convince senior management or the older guard why this is a good idea and why you need to do this. And they're always trying to shut you down and tell you you're a young kid and this isn't going to happen. You know, when I just joined, we actually didn't have office space. Myself and Moeed and Murad used to share a desk, three of us on one table. I look at it now when I'm hiring younger people who are coming in and there's a very big sense of entitlement that young people have these days. And I say this being a young person. It's actually weird saying young people. Um, but it's just... People come in expecting everything to be amazing and they want everything to be 100% perfect. Like I think to build something from scratch, there's a lot of stuff that's not perfect. There's a lot of time, effort you need to put in, roll up your sleeves and do the work. And I mean, sharing a desk with someone, being kicked out of offices, not having budgets or phones to do these sort of things. But because you believe in what you're doing, you find a way to make it work. And I think that was the magic of the team that we're part of and the new media team that I think we all just got along, I think, beyond work as friends, colleagues, and I think it, we became family over the time. But Riyadh, what, what kept you going? Um, you were at Al Jazeera for the better part of a decade, and towards the, the latter half uh, of your time at Al Jazeera, you did some spectacular, world-renowned stuff, and we'll, we'll talk about at the AJ Plus and some of the other successes. But it would have been very, very painful over seven, eight years to pitch ideas and get them rejected 
and be seen as you know just a bunch of young people in in a porter cabin um i kept me going is the impact so i think you spoke about the latter stuff that was exciting and that's the stuff that a lot of people see um that's what gets a lot of credit but for me that's probably the least interesting projects that we've ever worked on i think we were the first broadcast in the world to put full-length shows up onto youtube myself moeed and some people used to physically go get cassettes i had to digitize the cassette <laughs> and then upload it. Um, that was kind of the level of work that we used to do. And yeah, people didn't take us seriously. I remember the Bahraini foreign minister visited us once and she was like, why do you want to put yourself on YouTube? Like, Al Jazeera is like some fancy car, Jaguar or something. And YouTube is like a Toyota. Why do you want to be like a Toyota when you can be like this? Um, so those were kind of the conversations. But we knew where the value was and we would put it up and we would see that direct impact from the community because this was something that we did in our personal lives. It wasn't something that we did externally and for me the type of stuff that we did and type of stories that we were covering is something i would have probably done in my free time if i wasn't getting paid to do it i think that's what kept me going you know twitter was still relatively new we started up a twitter account um israel decided to attack gaza this was quite a big onslaught and i remember distinctly we used to get footage from people on phones this was from the old nokia phones i was just having this discussion with someone the other day one image that stuck with me ever since then is a missile hit a building it crashed on someone and there's a man on the ground and he had his finger up to saying ashadu allah ilaha illallah ashadu allah ilaha illallah as he was passing away and that image has always stuck with me from that day and we live tweeted minute by minute what was happening and so like on it the Twitter account was AJ Gaza at the time. He probably only had started with 100 followers. By the end of it, it was 10,000 followers. The founder of Twitter ever at the time tweeted what Al Jazeera is doing on Twitter is interesting. This was like before anyone had used Twitter in this sort of form. And as a team, we were able to take something that was completely new and come up with a completely new format and essentially invent live tweeting before it was a thing, before hashtags even existed on Twitter. We were then taking that and mapping it out. And I remember we were sitting in the newsroom and we had this map and everything and people, I remember having heated debates because the older English website at the time wanted us to shut it down. Said it's not journalism, it's destructive, we can't do this here, we can't put it up. So we put it up on a random AJ Labs website that wasn't even linked back to that. And the next day we got a call from the New York Times who said what well, Al Jazeera is interesting. They wanted to interview us and they came out and interviewed us. Moeed and Murad's pictures in the New York Times that the next morning and I did an interview with them. And I remember walking through the newsroom and someone holding a copy of the New York Times, reading it and saying, do these guys actually work for us? Um, in the English <laughs> newsroom. But that's the energy that I loved. It's when you're pushing these notions in the startup phase when everyone is telling you no, then for me, then you know you're onto something good. A few years after that, I was traveling somewhere and I met I met a few people and one of them was a professor in the US who said that he followed the AJ Gaza Twitter account and it was the first time he'd ever seen a different perspective of what was happening there and he completely changed his perspective about what was happening in the war and he went back and reworked some of his teaching materials to actually change his narrative on this sort of stuff from a simple tweet. And it's those sort of moments, or it's a Palestinian that I've met who said, thank you for tweeting that out because that account meant so much to us. Maybe that someone actually cared enough to tell our story. So it's not about the New York Times articles. It's not about those sort of things or the words that you get, but it's actually feeling that impact that you've had, that impact in someone's life that keeps you going, regardless of how many people are telling you no when you've seen and feeling that impact. That's the drive. When everyone is telling you no, that's when you know you're onto something good. Well, it's early days of the Arab Spring. A lot is already going on in the newsroom, with the Palestine papers just about to break. And Riyadh goes to the Director General of the hottest media organization in the Middle East and proposes something literally revolutionary. So you knock on the door of the Director General of Al Jazeera, yeah. who manages hundreds of journalists across the globe because you got a tweet from or a couple of tweets from Egypt uh, saying we need Al Jazeera to be there yeah and his response was um he said that it's he said actually his first response was which was a 
probably one of the most important life lessons I actually had was we are here to report on news, not to make news. So when it's something more, come back with something more, um, which I think is very important and for anyone working in media to know that there's a very big difference between activism and journalism. And it's our job to report on what's happening, not necessarily do anything beyond that. And I think that's an important lesson. So kick me out the first time. Second time, people had made it to Tahrir Square and those protests were starting to scale. And probably maybe now a few hundred people up to maybe close to a thousand people in Tahrir Square. Went back to him again. He's like, okay, that's interesting, but still not enough to do anything. Kicked me out a second time. And then things started kicking off. People started through Bamboozer and all these other sites at the time were actually live streaming what was happening. We then went back the third time to him and said, here's the footage, here's what's happening. He looked at it, he made a few phone calls to our correspondents and teams in Egypt to get a sense of what is going on. And then they decided to get teams out and switch the coverage then to Egypt. So around the time of the Arab Spring, Riyadh was burnt out. He was bogged down with the digital coverage of the Arab Spring itself. And he was also tasked with doing digital feasibilities for a number of projects, including Al Jazeera Turk, Al Jazeera Balkans, Kiswahili and Espanol. He kept repeating to me in this interview that he was at breaking point. He wanted to go home and spend time with his family. I had my tickets booked. Um, my wife, Fajana, we were flying out and about a few days before she was going before me, I was supposed to meet her, I think a week later, I got, well, it got a random email saying, we need Riyadh in New York tomorrow. No one knew what for. I was like, I'm not doing anything, I'm going on holiday. Why not? Trip to New York, let's see. I mean, I wasn't bothered, so I flew out to New York. I get to New York, um, I was taken to a little diner by Amjad. Amjad Atala, the director of the Americas, basically. Americas at the time. And we're sitting in this diner, I'm like, what on earth? Why? This thing, first of all, so secretive, and why I'm in New York. He's like, Bank Current TV, and we're going to be launching a channel only in America, but it's top secret. Only I think six, seven people knew about it. And the reason they call me out is because they go into the contract. So we had to look at the contractual obligations. So I was called in to sit down and go through the contractual obligations of what it meant for us in terms of at least once acquisition goes through, what we need to do in terms of digital. So guys, I've, I've actually had to cut a lot of the interview out due to the sensitive details being discussed. But essentially, what Iyad did, he knocked on the door of the new director general and he made a pitch for a digital-only channel out of San Francisco. And the director general, who's now a minister in the country, agreed. But just let that sink in for a moment. You propose a multi-million dollar project out of San Francisco, a long way away from Doha. You're 31, 32. You've been working on digitizing a TV channel from the peripheries of an organization and then all of a sudden you're tasked with leading a whole project on behalf of the leadership of the network leading a newsroom leading a group of people from the valley it's new it's fresh it's the next generation of news what's exciting about the news today is being able to bring other voices into the conversation if we tell stories in a unique way you want to hear about the stories that matter to you and Were I you think, nervous? I was. I think for me, it's. I felt the responsibility of it a lot. I think the responsibility is something that I genuinely believed in. And I think I put a lot of my heart and soul into it, and just praying every day that it would be used for good. I think that I think that it's off the back of the Arab Spring that media can be used as a tool for whatever it is. And I was never. I mean, for me, it's sort of the startup phase. I was never going to stay long term on the project. Just get it off the ground, launch it, and then move on and just pray that whatever it is that we build actually makes a difference in the world. And I think that responsibility is something that weighed a lot on me. So did you ever imagine that this product that you're going to build in San Francisco would win a Webby for best news and information in the world? If I said yes, it would sound arrogant. (laughs) 
Um, I had a conversation with Dina Takuri and every year around the same time I tell her I told you so and it was she had left Huffington Post to join us and we were still early days very startup and she was worried about leaving a good job to come there and HuffPost I think that a month after she joined I think they hit either 500 million or a billion views and she was having doubts whether she made the right decision to move or not and I sat her down and said listen we will be bigger than them give us 12 months and we will be the number one in the world and Started off as a YouTube channel, then it became a mobile app, then it became a Facebook channel. Um, Facebook launched native video about three weeks before the official launch of AJ Plus, and I remember sitting down having the conversation, should we upload, shouldn't we upload? Facebook said they're trying this video thing, let's put it up. We took a decision, took a risk, and switched from YouTube to putting it up onto Facebook, and it paid off at the time, but it's kind of where you wing into that. There's no, there is no data, and I remember getting into heated arguments with some people on the team who would come in and say, where's the white paper for this? I'm like, there is no white paper for this because it doesn't exist. What we're going to do will become the white paper for this. And I think that's kind of the arguments that we had. And then the stuff that, as a young person going in, buying a TV channel and having worked in digital, I had no idea what an MCR control room was. And I remember sitting in meetings with, I'm leading a team, and people are asking me questions about it. And I have Google open as you're asking questions about equipment. I'm busy Googling it. <laughs> and saying, okay, that makes sense in this sort of space. So, I mean, there is that element of uh, wing in some of the things you go through also. And I think for me, it's believing that we can do great things, that we can achieve that number one spot and that we aim for that. I don't expect to aim for anything less than that. And if I don't believe it as someone who's leading a project, I cannot expect the team to believe that and the team to kind of rally behind that. It's something that with any project you take on, and I think as Muslims, whatever it is, you have to believe it. You have to believe and aim for that. And you have to believe and aim to build the best of anything that's out there. Um, we talk about the glory days of Muslims in Islam, but we talk about it. No one believes that we can do that again. No one believes that anyone is capable of that again. And I think that we need to go back to a space where we can actually dream big and dream of greatness and dream of doing things and stop blaming everything around you. Stop blaming Western media. Stop blaming everything else and say, oh, look how they're doing this. Look who's controlling the media and all these conspiracy theories that we have because that inherently holds us back. Hi guys, we'll be back in a moment to talk about Riyadh's move to Istanbul and also we go fairly deep into his personal life. But before we do, a quick plug for Toledo Society, if I may. Toledo Society is aspiring to become a network of quality podcasts that appeal to English-speaking Muslims across the globe. Transit Lounge is simply one of these shows. To find out more, visit ToledoSociety.com. Back to the interview and now on to Turkey. There have been lights, cameras and action at TRT World for more than a year now. But this was a chance to show off the channel to those who haven't seen it yet, in front of the Turkish president. TRT World is certainly to fill in a very important gap. It is giving a chance to the people to appear on screens who weren't able to in the past. TRT Worlds was one of many options that Alhamdulillah came up at almost the same time and kind of deciding what to do. And the first time they called me, my answer was no, I didn't want to join a TV channel because of the digital background. After chatting to them, they said, you know, I'll just have a chat with management and kind of see what they're trying to build. And after talking to them, it reminded me very much of the early days of Old Zira or why I had left South Africa the first time to move to Doha, there's very few media outlets in the world that are trying to question the norms that have been given to us by existing media or by existing societies that are out there. Um, and TRT World, being based out of Istanbul, is trying to provide 
a different lens or a different paradigm or a different view into the world to actually understand from people who are impacted by a lot of the policies or that are happening out there. How can we actually speak for ourselves versus having other people speaking on our behalf in the sort of space geopolitically being there? Um, obviously, with the refugee crisis that's happening at the moment in Syria, it's the worst humanitarian crisis of our lifetime. Um, GRT World, geographically being based in Turkey, actually has a lot of access to those stories. Telling those stories were important to me and trying to build something that could have a positive impact in the world. I think that's sort of the promise of TRT World. So for, for the record, at the same time that you had an opportunity to go to TRT, you had a couple of other offers. Why would you choose TRT? I mean, my entire life has been, I guess, doing the opposite of what the expected decision has been, um, or not the normal decision in the sort of space. And as I said, it goes back to that vein at Ethabun. You know, where am I going? What am I going to be doing? And where can I add the most value? A lot of the big companies that are out there, they're great. And at some point, yeah, I'd love to work with them or start up again or something else. But right now, where we are as humanity, we need to do something before it's too late. We need to develop something that's just not informing anymore, that's driving conversations, that gets us thinking critically, gets us trying to find solutions to the problems that seem to be increasing day by day. I don't think Google is trying to solve that problem. So by now you'd appreciate that Riyad is a mission-driven person and he drives a lot of his values from his spirituality. So I needed to ask him, when you lead major projects, when you leave your comfort zone of the South African Muslim community, when you travel abroad, when you're meeting people from all walks of life, does this all take a toll on A, your spirituality and B, your family? So you had a relatively religious upbringing. Uh, you moved to Doha, which is pretty much a conservative environment. You worked in a country that's that's predominantly Muslim. Moving to San Francisco, meeting people from the valley, uh, working with them, having them reporting to you, uh, having colleagues from all walks of life, Muslims and non-Muslims, religious and non-religious. How did that have an impact on your spirituality? At one stage, you were going to learn Arabic and you wanted to give up everything and go and study Islamic studies in Arabic. How did that Riyadh a decade ago compared to the Riyadh in San Francisco? That's a very big question. I think somewhere along the line, I mean, moving to Doha was great, but I think living in a Muslim country, you take a lot for granted. And I don't think you have a sense of everyone is the same around you. So you don't actually have that check of what do you actually believe. Um, you kind of talk about echo chambers, you get caught up in sort of a Muslim echo chamber, you take a lot for granted. Um, I found myself moving to San Francisco a good rediscovery of the old Riyadh um, and I found San Francisco helped a lot with that because you are an outsider all of a sudden in the space which is you just the concept of halal food for example um, everyone has different concepts so you I had do, to fight I to be more God conscious a simple thing like I said like for me halal food I do zabi halal some people don't do zabi halal but um, for me it's just the consciousness of okay I can't eat in this place. I need to find another halal restaurant, pull up an app to find a halal restaurant. There is a conscious effort to do that, which means at those moments, I'm consciously uh, consciously identifying as being Muslim and doing something for this purpose in all these sort of small moments that you go through in that sort of space versus living in a Muslim country where you don't have those sort of things. So there's not those reminders of who you are and where you fit in the sort of space, um, which I did appreciate. So would you say your move from the Islamic society of Doha to San Francisco was a move that solidified your religious identity yeah i mean and the reason why it took me back to so i went to an anglican school in south africa and i had the same sort of identity being one of a few muslims in my school in terms of just going for prayer sort of thing that sort of space so i guess moving to san francisco probably connected me back with my older self and that sort of experience that was there and i think the one ayah that's always stuck with me from when i was a kid is where are we going 
why are we what are we doing what's the purpose where we're heading to and that's always kind of the guiding light in generally where you are in the sort of space um regardless of your environment you just you have to have a foundation or reference point that you come to would you say you have a very patient wife uh, farzana traveled with you from a very young age you got married early uh, you moved to doha together and then you moved to san francisco and now to trt in istanbul so i wouldn't just say patient i would say amazing um alhamdulillah i'm blessed to have such an amazing wife supported me and has encouraged a lot of stuff she's sort of my i guess my moral conscience through a lot of things and even when it comes to work and everything else she's the person i bounce ideas off first um moving between countries is tough um it can have that sort of strain in terms of different spaces as you go to as a young couple in terms of finding and setting up in a new space with every relationship you have your ups and your downs and kind of seeing each other more as complementing each other versus it being i guess just that sort of supportive role more of sort of a leading role i guess in sort of our relationship is kind of i think maybe the differentiating factor of how i think we've been able to survive all these different moves riyad i'm going to ask you a sensitive question i've never asked you before um you've been married for 14 years and uh you don't have any kids is that by choice or it's by allah's choice <laughs> Um yeah so I think I mean uh, this is about I guess 2010 we found out we couldn't have children and it's from my side that we can't have children which is interesting in itself this is surprisingly a lot of people actually go through this as a challenge in life and the different ways you can go through it be it either from a female or male side it's an interesting challenge I think when we found out about it it's kind of your life plans come crashing down in terms of you always have a vision of individual or as a couple of a life that you want to build together or the painting of ideal life in with kids um when you get married you also think about these sort of things so it's a new space um it's something it's one of those challenges that you don't expect life to throw at you ever and i think early on we kind of had a discussion and sat down and decided this is what we're going to figure out for life at least for the next few years this is where we want to go to kind of develop that sort of life plan and build from there would you say this has made you stronger as a couple of course and hamdra has been great i think we've just become a lot closer like i think we've become very dependent both with each other and very reliant on each other in the sort of space because and 14 years traveling around the world with the only family in that sort of space that you know you don't have extended family in the sort of space so you do become a lot dependent on each other but your relationship does become a lot stronger and i think you tend to get to know each other in a way that i think people who have kids maybe you get to know in a different sort of space but i think if not having kids and kind of consciously making the decision it opens up a whole different path of a relationship that can be developed and can be nurtured and can be built which alhamdulillah is beautiful as allah says in every difficulty there is ease and i think that this is one of those things where if you're able to get through that point and work through it you can kind of see the beauty on the other side of it so riyad you go back to university in johannesburg you're sitting in front of the msa and you've got a chance to give him advice three do's and three don'ts what are the riyad minty three do's and three don'ts don't do it no. <laughs> <laughs> the three do's are fail 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 that's the most important thing i can tell anyone is take risks fail and learn from it that's the only way you're going to grow it's the only way you're going to have an impact in the world and it's the only way you really going to find what you're passionate about keep on making those mistakes and don't be scared of them the three don'ts don't let anyone tell you no i think it would be one i wouldn't necessarily have three but i think that anything is possible and a lot of the people who will give you life advice actually they always don't take advice from anyone who wants to give you advice that's my other advice in terms of don'ts um people give you advice from their own paradigm and from their own experience and their own lived experience um i don't like reading self help books and all these sort of things because every single story and having gone through aj plus and all these sort of things 
there are so many different factors that contribute towards the success of something and 95% of those factors are completely out of your control or your understanding of anything you can do. It's just the ability to make those decisions at that point and pivot with it. And if you're going to read someone else's story or take advice from someone else who's been through something, it's not going to be something you can just copy and paste onto your own life. You need to find your own path and your own journey and often than not you'll find more freedom in doing that versus constraints. Advice is often can constrain you. Riyadh, we're going to ask six quick questions. Uh, we expect an answer within a few seconds, 60 seconds in total. Number one, you're the imam on the 27th night and you have to make dua. What is that one dua you make? For sincerity. If you didn't have to work, what would you be doing? Well, I want to actually, it would still work, but I would want to have an ice cream shop in Cape Town. If you can live anywhere other than Cape Town and other than Istanbul, <laughs> where would you live? You can't rule those words out. Cape, I mean, Cape Town, um, I'd like to live in Japan at some point, but not long term. But I would like to live in Japan for a little bit. Which product did you buy for less than $100 that's been the best value? A maxi passport with more pages so I can get more visas and not have to keep on Oh, look at you living the high life. Uh, and the final question. <laughs> <laughs> it helps that is, for travel. That is not even first world problems, man. No, that is the odd minty problem. You can travel. You don't have to have... A high life to travel you can get in a car and drive across the border unless you live in australia but for everyone else you can easily just go to another country for cheaply and close by but travel as much as you can if you have extra money just travel like you will the best thing you can ever do with your life is travel so so being the head of digital of uh, trt world and previously at the helm of aj plus you would have passed through many apps what is an app that you would swear by is an app i would swear by no, I was, well, my answer is actually switch off your phone and don't use an app. All right. So the power button. Riyad Minty, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, that was Riyad Minty on Transit Lounge. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the interview. If you want to support or if you have any ideas for this podcast or any other podcast, please email the team at info at